0: All right, this is Dr. Jim Cox, and this is De- December the 11th. I had to think about that, 2023, and we're looking at uh, Ron Rhodes' book, uh, Basically Bible Prophecy, but in our first session tonight, we're going to look at uh, some notes I put together called Christmas in Prophecy. The verse verse that comes to my mind when I think about Christmas is Galatians 4, verses 4 and 5, and it says, but when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And the thing that always stuck out to me in that passage is that it says, in the fullness of time. And to me, in the fullness of time meant that exactly at the right time, God had decided from before the foundation of the world, this is when He would send His Son, God incarnate, to Earth to be our Savior. So what was special about this point in time? Why Why would God send Jesus right at this point in time to Earth? Well, I thought of a few things and jot them down, so let's go through these and let me explain them. Some are self-evident. Why was this the right time for Jesus to be born? Well, the first reason is that for the first time there was a common language that was called Common Greek or Koine Greek. And everyone understood this. And as a result, it made Uh, made it possible for this language to be used and for people to understand the gospel, regardless of their nationality. The Septuagint had been written, the Old Testament in Greek. And what's so important about this is that sometimes when the Jews had moved to other places like Alexandria in Egypt, They forgot Hebrew. As a result, they could not read some of the scriptures. And so, a group of 70 or so were commissioned Jews to translate the Old Testament scriptures that were in Hebrew into Greek. And so, we have the knowledge here of how they looked at the Old Testament and how they interpreted it and translated it from one language into another, and the fact that the Old Testament was in Greek meant that the common man could read it. I'm talking about common Greek, coiny Greek. All right. The other important thing about the Septuagint, and it was written about 250 BC, is it established a time frame for Old Testament prophecies and books. For those that claim that these prophecies were written in the first or second century A.D. on that, because we actually had those books in the Septuagint, and we know when the Septuagint was written. I'll come back to that in a little bit here. Pax Romana meant Roman peace, and it made it safe to travel across the empire. Not that was absolutely safe. There were still a lot of things that could happen, but given the ancient world, Rome was a relatively, in comparison, peaceful place. And any rebellions and those things were put down by Rome. Rome was known for building roads to most locations, many miles of paved roads. I have a, a, a videotape of a, a, a person that went through where Paul traveled. And he goes through where Peter traveled. And then he shows, in some of these places, the Roman roads that Rome had built roads to these locations, and the elements of those roads were still there. And you could see where they had put down stones to pave the way. So it meant travel was a lot easier in those days because roads had been established to major population centers. The Romans let groups practice their religion peacefully. And so even during the time of Jesus, the Jews practiced their religion They weren't allowed to stone anybody, although they would try, but as long as they didn't create a ruckus or some type of rebellion, they were allowed to practice their religion. That would mean that when Christianity spread, at least initially, they were allowed to practice their religion or relationship with Christ. Next, you could travel from province to province since it was under one government. You didn't need a special pass to go from one province to the next. It was all one empire. The world's population was reachable and Israel was at the center of travel. To go from north or south, you had to go along the Mediterranean Sea on the east side and that would lead you right through Israel. So Israel was strategically located if the gospel was going to be propagated from a central source. Israel had failed uh, in being a light to the Gentiles, and here's a couple of references. I won't read those, but one of the functions is to bless the whole world. That was uh, the Abrahamic covenant in Genesis 12, but they failed to do that. They were inward focused, and in fact, they thought the Gentiles were kind of not chosen. They were kind of... Uh, bereft of any merit and so they weren't the light to the Gentiles like they were supposed to be. So the Gentiles needed a light and of course that was Jesus. He would be the light to the world. The Jews were looking for a Messiah to free them from the Roman oppression. So they were looking for a Messiah. They just didn't see that the Messiah would come as a savior to be the remedy for their sin. And if they would have accepted the Messiah spiritually, then following that, he would have set up a physical kingdom. But they didn't see it. It's interesting that Isaiah 53 used to be a messianic text. And then when Jesus came along, they discouraged people from reading it after that point. Now there were some Jews that believed that there were going to be two messiahs. They understood the one that would be a sacrifice and the one that would be a political king. And one was called Messiah Ben-Joseph and the other was called Messiah Ben-David. That Ben-Joseph would have been the one that would be sacrificial, the Ben-David would be the one who would come as king. So at least they were expecting a looking for a Messiah. And Jesus said, I'm the one you've been looking for. And of course, when we read the Gospel of Matthew, Matthew goes back to all these prophecies that said, this is what the Messiah would do. And you missed him. I think, I think if I'm right, Matthew cites over 90 prophecies from the Old Testament in his Gospel. Herod's temple allowed active practice of Jewish laws by the Jews and Jesus could contrast that with real faith. And of course, Jesus went to the temple and he pointed out the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and the scribes. Synagogues were located in many places. All you need, the way I understand it, is you needed 10 male Jews over a certain age, and you could establish a synagogue. And so there were synagogues all over, and we know that's where Paul went, right? Whenever he went into a community, he would look like to see if they had a synagogue, and he would go there first. So it was a good place to go to the Jews where they would gather in order to share the gospel. Idol worship had reached catastrophic proportions and people were spiritually hungry. What the Romans did is they adopted the Greek gods. Sometimes they would rename them and add a few of their own. And of course, eventually we had emperor worship. The emperor was a god. So, they definitely were in need of the true God. In fact, when Paul went to Athens, in chapter seventeen of Acts he says, I noticed you have a mind meant to the unknown God. He says, I'm gonna tell you who that unknown God is, so you're gonna be aware when I'm done. <laughs> and some did believe, some didn't, but some did. Writing had been developed so the gospel could be recorded for future generations. Thanks. This time fulfilled prophecy as to when Jesus would arrive on the scene. So if we go back to the prophecies in Daniel, it's specified when he would go into Jerusalem declare himself to be Messiah. They would be able to know when the Messiah was to arrive. In fact, remember when at the end of chapter 39 of Matthew, Jesus says, I would have gathered you as a hen gathering her chicks, but you, you would not. And he says, you should have known the day of your visitation, but you missed it. They could have figured it out. And he says, I'm not going to come to you again unless you say blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, which will happen at the end of the tribulation as we talked about. But we know that he came at the time prophecy said that he would come. And Paul was the perfect messenger for propagating the gospel. If there was anyone that could do what God wanted, it was Paul. Paul was a brilliant man. There was a university in Tarsus where he was from, most likely he probably went to the university. He had one of the best Jewish teachers in Gamaliel. He knew the Jewish scriptures. He was born in a pharisaical family. He said he was a Pharisee of the Pharisees. Even though Paul persecuted the Jews, he had zeal. He said only his zeal was, he says he excelled all the others with his zealousness, but he did it in ignorance. He probably spoke three languages, and it's pretty obvious by his letters, especially the letter to the Romans. He was a brilliant thinker, a brilliant man, and being sold out for Jesus, for me to live as Christ and to die as gain. It's to, he says, but it's to your advantage I I stay and help you, but he was not threatened with heaven. He said, "If I die, I'm going to be with the Lord." He said in 2 Corinthians, Second Corinthians, five eight. He says, "To be absent from the body, to be present with the Lord." And he couldn't wait. Yet he did the he did the um, the mission that God had set out for him. And he, we know in Acts 9, when he was converted, that he says, tell Paul, this was an, an, Ananias that went to, went to Paul when Paul is blinded. And he says, tell him that he must suffer much to be a light to the Gentiles. And we look at all he suffered in 2 Corinthians 11, and he gives a list of that, and you're saying, how could he go on? It was his love for Jesus, that's how it could go on. That motivated him. He says, everything that I give it up is, is basically manure just for getting to know Jesus better. He said in Colossians 1.18 that, Je- it says that in everything Jesus might be preeminent. That was Paul. And so he was a special man that God had had raised up, Paul says he was set apart since he was born, he just didn't know it. <laughs> and that God had a special mission and and so Jesus came at the right time to have that type of messenger, that type of apostle to propagate the gospel. And also I believe Mary was the perfect mother and Joseph was the perfect father. Mary. She could hardly believe the angel. We're going to read the story here in a little bit. But Noah, she was a servant. She says, whatever God wants, I'll do. Joseph was special because normally someone like Joseph, seeing that his betrothed was pregnant, would have divorced his wife. And yet when God spoke to Joseph, he said, no, I'll take care of her. And he took care of Jesus as well. He was a special man that God had arranged to marry the Virgin Mary. Let's look at the verses here, Luke 1, 26 through 38. I'll, I'll read them. I didn't print them out on, on your copy, but it says, In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to be born will be called holy, the son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren. For nothing will be impossible with God. And Mary said, behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. And the angel departed from her, her servant heart. And then in Luke 1, 46 through 55, she responds with uh, a song, basically, she says, And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior, for he has looked down the humble estate of his servant, referring to her. For behold, from now on all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name Now, the account in Matthew, chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. says, Now the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. When Joseph woke from sleep, he did as the angel of the Lord commanded him. He took his wife, but he knew her not until she had given birth to a son and he called his name Jesus. I think both were special. Mary, obviously, was special as a servant knowing that she was serving her God that she was specially chosen. And Joseph could have divorced her and chose not to but instead was a father to jesus and a protector of mary as well we also know that god prepared a particular body for jesus and the author of hebrews which could have been paul we don't know but he talks about this in hebrews 10 verses 5 through 10 so let me read it for us it says consequently when christ came into the world he said and this is Christ speaking. Sacrifice and offerings you have not desired, but a body have you prepared for me. In burnt offerings and in sin offerings you have taken no pleasure. Then I said, Behold, I've come to do your will, O God, as written to me in the scroll of the book. When he said, Above... You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to law. Then he added, Behold, I have come to do your will. He abolishes the first in order to establish the second, by that will we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus, Jesus Christ, once for all. And so this is about the only place that I know of where Jesus actually speaks before he was born. And he says, God, you create a body for me. And he don't desire burnt offerings, but he knew his body would be the body that would be the sacrifice, the perfect sacrifice for all that would receive him as Savior. So let's get into the next part here. Any questions on that part? Well, some say that, well, in fact, I heard this the other day, and it says, well, yeah, we have prophecies in the Bible, but these were written after the fact. People knew that, you know, they, these are there. So when Jesus showed up, they said, okay, here's some prophecies. We'll, we'll just write that he, he, he went ahead and fulfilled those. The second way they look at it is say this, well, uh, we'll just go ahead and make up some prophecies and say he fulfilled them. He's here, so we'll just do that. Well, we do have a problem with that. And first of all, saying that there were prophecies and he just, they wrote them after the fact, well we know from the Septuagint that these prophecies were already written 250 B.C and older. In fact, when we go through some of these prophecies, I put the date next to them so you know how old they were. So we know that can't be right. And we also know that they say, well, Jesus knew what these prophecies were from the Old Testament, so He just, he He maneuvered Himself to fulfill them. And so that's why I'm discussing Christmas and prophecy because I'm gonna discuss 15 prophecies that Jesus could not have fulfilled on his own. He had no control over these prophecies for them to occur. So on both accounts, we'll see that these critics are wrong. Yes, go ahead, Tom. Or I mean, Paul. Who takes that, who takes that stance? Skeptics. Yeah, yeah. Is it, or is there a, yeah, if you're talking, a, to, you know, you're talking a, to an atheist. That that as well? No, they understand the Old Testament has prophecies. They just didn't believe that Jesus was the one. But there are, when you try to use um, fulfill prophecies and evidence that God exists, or that Jesus was the Messiah, there'll be some that say, just what I said here, that, hey, these. This one had Jesus did really, he just maneuvered himself, maneuvered himself to be able to fulfill these and look like he was the guy that they were looking for. Or these were written after the fact. In fact, I think I mentioned this once that in Daniel in chapter eleven, in one chapter we have over one hundred fulfilled prophecies. In fact, they're so accurate it's been the claim that Daniel was written later after the fact. Because no one can believe that people can tell in advance, or God can tell in advance, what's going to happen. He reports it. And yet we know by the Septuagint that it was written before the time occurred. Yeah, Satan always deceives and creates doubt in people's minds, and they try to find reasons to explain otherwise. Why not to believe the Bible? Because I've heard people, and to be honest, if I became a true believer, okay, the Bible was given right? How many do Yeah, right. And how many authors? How could any of that come together and really make any sense and do you believe it? Well, that's exactly why it is true. Yes. When when God comes into the equation, it changes everything. Right, right. As I quote a number of times, Isaiah 46 verses 9 and 10 says, Remember the former things of old. For I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning. And from ancient times, things not yet done. Saying, my counsel will stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. And so one of the evidences he gives us there that he's God is because he can tell us to end from the very beginning and end, explain things not yet done from ancient times. He says, nobody else can do that, but I'm God. And that's how you know that I exist and you know that this is God's word. So, and so, there are books, I, I remember, uh, I think it was Josh McDowell's a book, uh, Daniel and the Lion's Den. And it was all about defending the book of Daniel that was written early. It was written before the prophecies in Daniel. Just take it this way. If we go to Daniel 9, and we look at verses 24 through 27, that's where we have the 70 weeks prophecy. And from that 70 weeks prophecy, we can calculate And you have a handout, by the way, on 70 weeks that does that. The day that Jesus went into Jerusalem and declared himself to be Messiah. March 30th, 33 AD. To the day. To the day. To the day. That has to be a God thing, right? (laughs) It has to be a God thing. of course, we already talked about where in Isaiah 45, where he named Cyrus as being the king that would allow the Jews to go back to Israel, and of course, the thing about that, as I mentioned, is that that was written 150 years before Cyrus was born. And then we have in 1 Corinthians, uh, not 1st, 1, 1 Kings, uh, chapter 13, that a man would come on the scene, a king called Josiah, and he would he would uh, reform. Jerusalem and and tear down the idols and so forth. And that prophecy was given to Jeroboam. 300 years before Josiah was born. And he calls him by name. Only God can do that, folks. Only God can, can tell the future. So, We see that occurring, and, and so uh, I believe that fulfilled prophecy is one of the greatest greatest evidences that God exists. When you look at evidence, I'm getting a little on the side here, but when you look at the evidence that God exists, one, anything that began to exist has to have a first cause. And we know that everything began to exist at a certain point in time. So anything that comes into being has to have a cause. We call that cause God. We know that when we see design, when we see DNA, and we see the fine-tuning of the universe, over 250 factors fine-tuned for us to be able to live here. Isaiah 45 says that he created everything for man to inhabit the earth. And so he's accomplished that with over 200 fine-tuned factors or we're able that, again, that's design. So whenever we see design, there has to be a designer. We call that designer God. We also know that there's common moral standards that are across different societies and cultures. Most believe it's wrong to murder. It's wrong to torture. It's wrong to rape. It'd be wrong to cut off heads of babies. And because we believe that there are objective moral laws, in fact, Paul writes in Romans that they're in our consciences already, that God's written them. We know there has to be a moral lawgiver. And we call that moral lawgiver God. And I think the next thing is Jesus showed up on the scene. And he says, God sent me, the Father. Not only that, I'm the Son of God. And we could go through the evidence for the resurrection. And I think it's strong and positive. Another evidence that God exists. And I think another evidence is the Jews. The fact that they're in their own land. After 2,000 years and they're in their own land. But they're not their own language. What's that? In their own language, all right, that too. That is has to be from God. It could not be, could not be from a oh, coincidence. So when we look at the evidence, it's very strong, and part of that evidence is fulfilled prophecy. And God uses it. He says, it by fulfilled prophecy, you know that I'm God and there's no one like me. There's no other. Well, let me move on here. So, so number one, he'll be a descendant of Abraham. We know that from Abrahamic Covenant. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you and make your name great so that you, may be, you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you. I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. And of course that's talking about the Messiah, the Redeemer coming through Abraham. In Genesis 17, Genesis 17 through two through seven. He says, I, I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then so Abram fell on his face and God said to him, behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall a name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham for I made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I'll make you into nations and kings shall come from you. And I will establish my covenant between me and you and your offspring after you throughout their generations for an everlasting covenant to be God to you and to your offspring after you. And we see in Matthew 1.1, 1, 1, it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Jesus couldn't influence that. He was born into that pedigree. Then number two, he'll be a descendant of Isaac. And we just, let me go on, Genesis 17, God said, No, but Sarah, your wife, shall bear you a son, and you shall call his name Isaac. I will establish my covenant with him as an everlasting covenant for his offspring after him. As for Ishmael, I have heard you. Behold, I have blessed him and will make him fruitful and multiply gr- him greatly. He shall follow 12 princes, and I will make him into a great nation. But I will establish my covenant with Isaac whom Sarah shall bear to you at this time next year." And in Matthew 1, 1 and 2, it says, the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah, and his brother. And so, going through the genealogy of Jesus, we see that Jesus is in the line of Isaac. Number three, he will be a descendant of Jacob. In Genesis 35, 9 through 12, it says, God appeared to Jacob again when he came from Padan Aram and blessed him. And God said to him, Your name is Jacob. No longer shall your name be called Jacob, but Israel shall be your name. So he called his name Israel. And God said to him, I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and multiply. A nation, a company, of nations, shall come from you, and kings shall come from your own body. Looking forward to the King, the land that I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will give to you, and I will give the land for your offspring after you, the land of Israel that we're talking about today. And I just read the genealogy. I'll read it again. In Matthew one one and two, it says the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the Son of David, the Son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. And it leads all the way down to Jesus. And then number four, he will be sent from the tribe of Judah. Genesis forty nine ten says the scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he, comes, until he comes to whom it belongs and the obedience of the nations is his. And just as I read here, it says Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers. So Jesus goes through the line of Judah. You'd think it'd be Joseph, but it wasn't. It was through Judah that the scepter or the kingship would come through. And then he will be a direct descendant of Jesse and King David, number five. Jeremiah 23, 5 says, Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will raise up for David a righteous branch, and he shall reign as king and deal wisely and shall execute justice and righteousness in the land. Looking forward to Jesus. Isaiah 9, 7. I'm sure you're familiar with this one. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and evermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this, looking forward again to Jesus and his rule. Second Samuel seven sixteen, 16. your house, and talking to David, your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever that we call it the Davidic covenant. Then Matthew 1, 5 and 6, it says, and Solomon the father of Boaz by Rahab, and Boaz the father of Obed by Ruth, and Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of David the king, and David was the father of Solomon by the wife of Uriah. And it goes down, if you look at the whole genealogy, it goes right down to Jesus. So we know he had the right pedigree. And I make a note here, no one else could prove their genealogy since the Romans destroyed all the records in 70 A.D. when they destroyed Jerusalem and the Temple. So no Messiah was possible after that. They could not prove it. And then this one takes a little explanation. Number six, if we'd be born before 11 A.D. and die after 11 A.D. Genesis 49:10. The scepter will not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until he comes to whom it belongs and that being the nation is his. Let me read the explanation here. I wrote it down so if it doesn't catch the first time you can read through it again. So the Jews regard this prophecy as extremely significant. It was a promise they would maintain control of their laws that is the scepter until the Messiah arrived. However when the Romans Usurped the law of Moses by forbidding them to carry out the ultimate sentence for blasphemy, death by stoning, it was regarded as the passing of the scepter. This happened about AD 11, when Archelaus, son and successor of Herod, was deposed, according to Josephus. Josephus was a uh, Jewish historian that served the Romans. Thus the Messiah would have to be born before this happened and die after since he was not stoned think about that one a little bit but that actually happened jesus was born before 11 a.d and died after 11 a.d just as it would be supposed by looking at this and number seven he was born he'll be born and die before 70 a.d and this is the 77's prophecy daniel 9 24 through 27. so 70 weeks are decreed about your people and your holy city that is your people, the Jews, and the holy city would be Jerusalem, to finish the transgression, to put an end to sin and to atone for iniquity, to bring in everlasting righteousness, to seal both vision and prophet, and to anoint a most holy place. Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem, to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, so there will be seven weeks. Then for sixty two weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. And after the sixty two weeks, an anointed one will be cut off. That's talking about Jesus, and shall have nothing. And the people, the prince who is to come, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Well, that was the general Titus, the Roman, destroyed the city in seventy a d and the and the and the temple. And uh, the prince who is to come is referring to the Antichrist. And it says, and the people, the prince who is to come shall destroy, destroy the city and the sanctuary, its end shall come with the flood, and to the end there shall be war, and desolations are decreed. And so, as I mentioned earlier, and, and by the way, you have a handout if you look. I, I don't have the right, the number, but if you look at the 70 weeks handout, I go through this passage and annotate it and explain what each phrase means. Warren? It's number 46. It's number 46, thank you. Number 46, and it has a diagram on the front showing the dates and the 70 weeks, and then on the back, it has this passage, and I go through and annotate it, each phrase I tried to explain it and what it means. So you can go back there and take a look. And that was handout again. What? Which one? Forty-six. Forty-six. Handout forty-six. So you can go back and take a look at that. But the point is that uh, in the order that's given here, and we know when when the when Jerusalem was destroyed and the and the temple was seventy A.D. And we know it says here that the Messiah would be cut off before that, and that's the case that Jesus died before seventy A.D. And we know from the figures given there that Jesus would enter Jerusalem in March 30th, 33 A.D. And Jesus will die before the temple was destroyed in 70 A.D. In fact, uh, scholars believe that was April 3rd, 33 A.D. And he'll be born in Bethlehem, Ephrathah, in Micah Micah Phi too. But you, Bethlehem, Ephrata who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, for you shall come forth from me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days. And so here is, back at that time as I explained, is there were two Jerusalems, and you have a map if you go back to the old 44 handout, and one Jerusalem was north of uh, Nazareth, just north of it. Two What's that? Two Bethlehems. Yes. Yeah, you have a map. If you go back to 44, I put a map in there. And so one Bethlehem was north of Nazareth in the, in the area of Zebulon. And the other Bethlehem was re- near Jerusalem in Judea. And since Mary was from Nazareth, you would think the Bethlehem would have been the one right next door. But it wasn't. It was the other one, which was almost 100 miles away, down south. Notice that in the prophecy, it says that one's gonna come from old. And it says here, it it says from you shall come forth for me, one who is to be ruler in Israel, whose origin is from old, from ancient days. And we know that Jesus was before the foundation of the world, he came from ancient days and he would be born when the fullness of time came at this time, here. Interesting. In Luke 2, 1 through 7, let me read that. It says, In those days a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was from the house and lineage of David. And by the way, when I said that these were the perfect parents earlier on in the fullness of time, both were in the lineage of David on both sides. Mary's from the lineage that went through Nathan. David's son, and you find that genealogy in Luke. And Joseph went through the lineage through Solomon. And you find that one in Matthew, the genealogy in Matthew. So both were the right pedigree, both parents. Even though Joseph was not the physical father, but the legal father. Legal father. So, uh, so to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem. So he went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, wrapped him in swallowing clothes, and laid him in a manger, because there was no place for them in the end. There's another verse, uh, Genesis 35, 19, 20. It says, So Rachel died and she was buried on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And Jacob set up a pillar upon her grave, it is a pillar of Rachel, Rachel's tomb, which is there to this day. So, again, a reference to Bethlehem here in the right place. Still there. Yes, it's still there. Thanks, Tom. Knowing. Someone has visited there more than once. <laughs> and Number nine, he, he will be born a virgin. Genesis 3.15 says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Genesis 3.15, uh, another version says, and I will put enmity between thee and the woman and between thy seed and her seed, and it shall bruise thy head and thou shalt bruise his heel. So, here we see a singular seed looking forward to a person, and it says, you will bruise his heel, looking forward to Jesus coming. And he would bruise the head of the serpent and uh, put an end to the devil. First uh, John 3, 8 says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was destroyed the works of the devil. First John 3, 8. And again, the in there is mentioned singular. Uh, Isaiah seven fourteen says, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and she call his name Emmanuel. And so we already went through the story of Mary and the angel showing up, Gabriel, and saying, You're pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And she says, How can I be? I'm a virgin. And he says, It's going to be a work of God. So Why was it necessary that Jesus be born a virgin? Well, one, he had no sin nature from Joseph, so he could die for our sins. He had no sin himself. So he'd be fully God, so he could pay the penalty, infinite penalty, works by man are insufficient. And he would be fully human, so he could die for our sin. No virgin birth, no sacrifice, no salvation. And then, and this is sometimes mentioned, so he would not avoid the curse of Jeconiah, also called Coniah in Jehoiachin. Uh, there's a curse in Jeremiah 22, 28 through 30. Uh, let me read it. It says, Is this man, Coniah a despised broken pot, a vessel no one cares for? Why are he and his children hurled and cast into a land they do not know? O land, 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 hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord, write this man down as childless, a man who shall not secede in his days, for none of his offspring shall see in sitting on the throne of David, and ruling really again in Judah. And uh, that goes to the line of of Joseph. So although Joseph was the legal line, it wasn't the bloodline. The bloodline went through Mary. And so Jesus still qualified and voided this verse that was given through the genealogy going through uh, Joseph line and going to, going to David. And uh, let me go on to number 10 here, a forerunner to prepare the way, so Isaiah 43 says, a voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Malachi 3.1 says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And we have the account in Luke about the fulfillment of this, and it ends up being John the Baptist would be the, the one that would, would be uh, making straight the way for the Messiah, Luke 1:36 and 37 says, And behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. Then Luke 1:57 through 63 says, Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. On the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John, and they all wondered. Then Matthew 3, 1, 2, 3, it says, in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is he who was spoken of by the prophet Isaiah when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness prepared the way of the Lord make his path straight. So, John the Baptist was the one that was preparing the path for Jesus. In this one, I'm not going to go through all the verses here, but I listed them in case you want to read them. But he would be born during the time of the Roman Empire, the fourth kingdom. And so, when we looked at the... Statue of Nebuchadnezzar, remember the head of gold was Babylon, I listed those in your notes. The chest and arms of silver would be Mia, Persia. The middle and thighs of bronze would be Greece. And the last kingdom, the fourth one, was the legs of iron, Rome. This is where it ended, and this is when Jesus would arrive on the scene, and that's when he was born during the time of Rome. Now in the future, down the road, we'll see the revived Roman Empire, and the kingdom of God coming in and being established on earth through the millennium. Also, when we look at Daniel nine, we see the same thing. We see the four beasts, and we see the lion with the eagle's wings that represented Babylon, the bear raised up on one side, which meant media Persia, and leopard with four wings with, and four heads was Greece. And a terrifying beast, ascending strong with iron teeth, which was Rome, the fourth one when Jesus would be born. And so that's exactly what occurred. And then uh, number 12, and I think uh, I'm gonna to have to take a break here in a little bit, let me go through a couple more here and then we'll, I'm almost done. Uh, he will spend some time in Egypt in his childhood. Hosea 11 one says when Israel was a child I loved him and out of Egypt I called my son. And Jesus couldn't control when this happened but Matthew refers to it as a fulfillment of prophecy. And uh, so let me, uh, let me skip down, for time's sake. Uh, it goes to the story of the Wiseman. Well, I'll go ahead and read it, because it is the wise men story, and it is Christmas, right? So let me go ahead and read it. and when they had departed, behold, the angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother, and flee to Egypt, and remain there till I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night, and departed to Egypt, and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Out of Egypt I called my son. And then. Number 13, children will be killed in Bethlehem as a result of Jesus' birth. In Jeremiah thirty-one fifteen, it says, Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. And this, the story goes on in Matthew 2, 16 and 18 through 18. So Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sat and killed all the male children in Bethlehem, and all the region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. This was fulfilled what was spoken of by the prophet Jeremiah, a voice was heard in Ramah weeping and loud lamentation, and Rachel weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. Let me hang in there and finish this up and then we'll take a break, okay? Number 14, a star would appear at Jesus' birth. And there's a little controversy over this one but I'll, I'll go ahead and read it. Numbers 24, 17 says, I see him but not now, I behold him but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob and a scepter shall rise out of Israel and it shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. This may have been combined What the Daniel 9 prophecy about the timing of Jesus' arrival and Micah's prophecy about where Jesus would be born. And then Matthew 2, 9 says, after listening to the king, they went on their way and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest or the place where the child was. Not sure how that all happened, but it appears that they may have looked at the Jewish scriptures and may have come to this one in numbers and so there would be a star and a star appeared and they might have been aware of the prophecy in Daniel about when it would be appearing, when Jesus would show up. And using those two pro- those scriptures together, they may have been looking, and that may have motivated them to go to the area they went to, which was Jerusalem and Bethlehem. All right, now the last one. He would be born in humble circumstances and be despised and rejected, called a Nazarene. And Matthew 2, 19 through 23. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt saying, Rise, take the child and his mother and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he arose and he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when they heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth that was spoken of by the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. Now, I looked this up and I went to a site called gotquestions.org. Usually it has pretty good answers. I won't vouch for all their answers, but here's what they wrote. This is the third option that Matthew uses the word Nazarene in reference to a person who is despised and rejected. In the first century Nazareth was a small town about 55 55 miles north of Jerusalem. It had a negative reputation among the Jews. Galilee was generally looked down upon by Judeans and Nazareth of Galilee was especially despised. John 1 46, Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. If this is Matthew's emphasis, the prophecies Matthew had in mind could include these two passages concerning the Messiah. Uh, one was one is uh, Psalm 22, 6 and 7 it says, but I am a worm and not a man, scorned by everyone, despised by the people. All who see me mock me, they hurl insults, shaking their heads. It's true that the Nazarenes were scorned by everyone, and so one could see this messianic prophecy as an allusion to Jesus' hometown of Nazareth. And then. Another verse, Isaiah 53, three says, he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised and we held him in low esteem. Again, in Jesus' day, Nazarenes were despised and rejected. And so Isaiah's prophecy could be viewed as an indirect reference to Jesus' background as the supposed son of a carpenter from Nazareth. So these are prophecies that Matthew had in mind When the meaning, he shall be called a Nazarene, a Nazarene is something akin to, he shall be despised and mocked by his own people. Jesus not only identified with humanity by coming to our world, he also identified with the lowly of this world. His upbringing in an obscure and despised town served as an important part of his mission. Jesus identified himself as Jesus of Nazareth during his encounter with Saul on the road to Damascus. After his conversion, Paul mentioned Jesus of Nazareth in Acts 29, 26, 9. One of the names of the early Christians was Nazarenes in Acts 24, 5. And the term Nasera meant Nazarene is still used today by Muslims to identify a Christian. Interesting. So those were 15 prophecies that were out of the control of Jesus that he fulfilled when he came. Yes, go ahead, Jane. Um, we've been told that the wise men were not, when you see all these nativity scenes, that yeah. the wise men were not there. At the no, camp. it's just... to put them in the manger scene because they didn't come on until months
1: later. Right,
0: Herod. Is that true? Herod killed everyone two years old and younger, so he figured Jesus could have been two years old. So it's thought that maybe the, the wise men... How many there were, we don't know. But the wise men. Wouldn't he have been gone then? What's that? that, Yeah. Yeah, it it sounds like he was in Bethlehem in a house someplace Mm -hmm. and not in the manger anymore. And that he had grown to be about two years old, possibly. And so when they came, it was not at his birth, it was after his birth, in my understanding. As much as two years after his birth, Right, from Bethlehem, they f- went to Egypt after being warning about Herod wanting to kill them, kill kill Jesus. Does that clarify things a little bit? Yeah. Oh. So yeah, it makes a pretty picture, though, at the manger and having the wise men there and giving the gifts. And the gifts that they brought allowed them to have the money to live in Egypt and go to Egypt. So they had gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Say gold represents the king. Frankincense, I believe... Means he was a priest, because the incense are the prayers of the saints, and the myrrh look forward to his death. Just a little extra threw in there, on that. Okay, all right. Let's take a break, and since we went so long, I'm going to let you take a little longer break. Uh, about about. Let's go ahead and, and meet again about uh, close to about uh, eight o'clock. I'll give you a little longer break to stretch your legs and so forth, and we'll get into the get into the final chapters of the book.